This weekend is dedicated to the exploration and the cultivation of compassion. And I'd like to begin the talk this evening by reading you a poem called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Recently, when I was in America, a woman who was writing an article for a magazine there, an article on compassion, called me up to ask me to take, to interview me to take part in this article. And at the end of our interview, I asked her how her research was going. She'd spoken to many people about compassion. And she said, everyone seems to think it's a good idea. But, she said, not everyone doesn't seem to think that everyone deserves compassion. I think our own relationship with compassion is something that can vary at different times in our lives. I think certainly it is no stranger to anyone. I'm sure that all of us at different times in our life have experienced those moments when our hearts seem to very naturally open to the presence of suffering when the walls or the barriers between self and other seem to crumble. We don't do anything special 
to make those moments happen. They seem to arise as a very natural response of the heart to suffering. And we know those moments deeply. We also know the moments when we have been really held in the compassion of another. Times when our own lives have been marked by suffering, shadowed by pain. And we felt the warmth, the tenderness of another's compassion. Now, in a way, there are almost two schools of thought, I would say, about compassion. There are those who would say that there is really nothing you can do to be more compassionate, to cultivate compassion, that it will always be a spontaneous, a natural response. There is another school of thought that really questions whether compassion really needs to be an accident. Whether those moments of crumbling and the dissolving of separation between self and other really need to be something that we just happen to stumble across in moments in our life. Certainly in both schools of Buddhist teaching, in the Theravada and the Mahayana school, compassion is a path. It is a practice. In the Theravada school of Buddhism, there is a range of practices called the Brahma-Viharas, the practices of loving-kindness, of compassion of appreciative joy, of equanimity. And these qualities are very much cultivated, very much nurtured in a very systematic, I might say in a very disciplined way. In the Mahayana school of Buddhism, of course there is the path of the Bodhisattva, those who dedicate themselves to bringing about the end of all suffering, the cultivation of bodhicitta. In both of these schools of Buddhist teaching, the paths and the disciplines of compassion are not so much avenues in which a particular feeling or sentiment is tried to be produced. What much more happens in these trainings, in these meditative paths, is more and more it is explored how we might incline our hearts and minds towards compassion. What is explored is how we might cultivate an inner climate of mind and heart, which is conducive, receptive, encouraging of compassion to arise. Now in these schools of meditation practice, compassion is never regarded as a particular feeling 
or state. In fact, compassion, of course, is never separated from the cultivation of wisdom, of insight and understanding. The wisdom and the insight that essentially serve to dissolve much of that which obstructs that natural warmth and responsiveness of heart. Now in these meditative paths or schools, Compassion practice is essentially a very simple practice. It is finding and cultivating, nurturing in our hearts the willingness and the intention to consciously engage with suffering. And clearly, without suffering, there is no need for compassion. And when we speak about compassion, <coughs> inevitably we will speak about sorrow, about suffering. There is in this path the intention to consciously turn towards the range of suffering in our world in ourselves, the suffering that appears in so many different forms. What is cultivated is the greatness of heart that allows us to turn towards that which we are most prone to flee from and abandon. All the dimensions of fear and despair and grief and sorrow and conflict and violence that the lives of so many countless people in the world. In this path we find the and cultivate the fearlessness and the openness to listen deeply, to learn how to receive some of the layers of estrangement and desolation and struggle that can be part of all of our lives. Sometimes it's said that the very, the fastest way to transformation is to turn directly towards what we are most prone to reject, to turn directly to what we are most prone to flinch, to flinch from. That it is here that we learn about healing, about tenderness, about forgiveness, about balance and about fearlessness. Now compassion does not necessarily involve us going out into the world and undertaking heroic deeds. It doesn't even involve entertaining grand ideas about changing the world or about saving all beings or ending all suffering. I think in the face of such ideals, most of us would falter. We would think that this is so impossible that we would feel too discouraged to even begin. Compassion is much more immediate than such great ideals. 
Compassion is really concerned with changing our world of the moment through changing our own heart and mind. It's sometimes said that if you want to know about your past, look at your mind now. And that if you want to know about your future, look at your mind now. And in this practice, this cultivation of compassion, it is really this mind and heart of the moment that we look at. And we learn that we can find in ourselves a freedom from hatred and fear and division and anger. And discovering that inner freedom we also find the freedom to explore the possibility of changing our world of the moment. I think sometimes it is not always helpful to think of compassion as a, a state or a place or a destination or even as a noun because then we think of something we have to achieve, something we have to reach, something we have to strive for. And then it can feel impossible. I think it is more helpful to think of compassion as a verb. How do we connect fully, open fully, to the moment we're in, to the life we're living, to the world we live in? How do we live compassionately? How do we listen deeply and receive our life fully? Now I have no doubt that to cultivate compassion we need to be willing to lose things. Compassion does ask for surrender, the willingness to lose things. Not a surrender of discriminating wisdom or wise choice or wise speech or wise action. But it does involve a surrender of many of the mechanisms and strategies that we usually employ to distance ourselves from that which is painful and difficult. Sometimes what we're asked to surrender are many of our kind of reflexive reactions that arise in the face of suffering. We learn to surrender avoidance and distance and the frenzy that we sometimes engage in of endlessly trying to fix things, to control things, or when that seems impossible to make ourselves more numb. Certainly what we learn to surrender are many of the reactions of blame and resistance. And in that surrender, that is often the place of wisdom. That is what we're losing to lose, uh, learning to lose. And I think it is that surrender that really is the beginning of opening, the beginning of connection. The beginning of finding a stillness of heart that really allows us to listen to the cries of the world.
allows us to listen to the sounds of the universe. In the cultivation of compassion, really it is a search for both understanding and for healing. The Dalai Lama once said that if you want to understand what compassion is, you should look into the eyes of a parent as they cradle their fevered child. In a sense, compassion is that unconditional cradling of pain, wherever it is found, inwardly or outwardly. A few years ago, I read an interview of a meeting, an account of a meeting that took place between the Dalai Lama and a monk who had been imprisoned and tortured for a number of years. And finally he escaped to India. And the Dalai Lama asked this monk, he said, did you ever feel that you were really in danger of losing your life? And this elderly monk answered, he said, the only times that I felt truly endangered were the times that I felt in danger of losing compassion for my jailers. And when I first read this story, I thought, well, of course, this must be some very special, very enlightened monk. But I he was a very ordinary monk. But in some ways also extraordinary. Because he was someone who was deeply established in his faith in the power of compassion. I think we sense in our own lives when we lose that connection with compassion. We also lose our capacity to really see ourselves in the eyes and the life or in the heart of another. And then we are prone to abandon, to reject, to disconnect, distance. When we lose that connection, what is, what emerges in its place, of course, is always a sense of separation, the place of pain, of conflict and struggle. I don't think it's difficult for us to see that in our own lives, the times of the greatest anguish times of the greatest fear and the greatest struggle are those times when we feel most separate and most apart. As a Native American saying says, if you ever truly want to understand another person, you need to put on their moccasins and walk in them for a hundred miles. Sometimes I think we all read the stories and the statistics of all of the things that cause the most death and the most pain and the most conflict in our world. We read the statistics of AIDS, of cancer, of malaria, of starvation, of war. And of course it's all true of how much these afflictions 
caused so much struggle and sorrow in our world. But I think I also sense that perhaps the greatest cause of violence and conflict and struggle and suffering is the separation and the division that can exist between I and you, between <coughs> us and them, between mine and yours. Out of that separation, of course, is born all of the isms, the sexism, the ageism, the racism. And compassion, if it has a dedication, it is dedicated to healing separation through understanding. The moment-to-moment cultivation of connectedness is not something that we demand or force, but it is something we learn to cultivate and to encourage and to nurture moment to moment. And I think it is that moment to moment cultivation of connectedness that really rescues our hearts and minds from distance and disconnection. On every level, that cultivation requires so much patience and so much commitment. Patience and commitment, perseverance, these are some of the qualities of compassion. That cultivation Our compassion is not to look upon compassion as some kind of device to fix our lives and our world. There's a cultivation of learning to open to our life, to transform our way of being here. The Dalai Lama once said, I have found that the greatest degree of of tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others puts the mind at ease. It is the ultimate source of happiness in life. Whether we believe in a religion or not, there isn't anyone who doesn't appreciate kindness and compassion. Before I speak about the practice, I'd like just to speak briefly about some of the guidelines of a retreat. especially for those of you who are new to Gaia House. You're probably aware, I hope, before you came here, that we hold all retreats at Gaia House in silence. In this tradition, silence is sometimes called noble silence, which I think is very important because it actually uh, distinguishes it from punitive silence. As some people coming into a retreat do find the silence quite difficult at times because they have a 
historical associations with silence as being a sort of withdrawal of affection or a withdrawal of tenderness. And, you know, if that is your own experience in the past, <coughs> I hope that you can recognize it as past. The reason we cultivate silence in a retreat is to enhance as much as possible our capacity to attend to the moment and to listen inwardly to listen to the subtler rhythms of our own minds and hearts and bodies. The other reason we cultivate and sustain silence on a retreat is really as a gesture of respect and support for others. <coughs> Just as others respect and support us through their silence. Most of us in our life have a good deal of time of interaction, of communication, of conversation, of talking. Some of it, of course, is quite wonderful. And sometimes it's way more than we need. Being silent can sometimes be a great relief. No one has to impress anyone else. You don't have to sing all your own songs or tell all your old stories or be someone special for anyone. I think it is a relief sometimes just to be able to be. So I would really invite you all, ask you all to commit yourself very conscientiously, very fully to the silence. Especially if you've come on the retreat with someone you know, a friend, partner, I think it takes a special commitment to really agree together to put down for this period of time any communication in your rooms, in the public areas, in the gardens, that we really commit ourselves to an inner silence. What also helps that, I think, on a retreat is also to commit to a certain simplicity. Again, I think coming to a retreat for people who are great doers in their life, it can feel a little bit like cold turkey. You know, you've got nothing to do here. You know, nothing to produce, nothing to occupy yourself with. You know, and of course we have these terrible fears of boredom, you know, so sometimes in our suitcase we've packed a few extra things to do just in case we happen to get terribly bored. But it's great at times to put down the doing. Sometimes we're not even aware of the sort of momentum of agitation and busyness that we can carry within ourselves until we take these moments just to stop, to be still for a while. Sometimes I think a meditation retreat is a kind of fasting not a food fasting, you will be fed, I can assure you, but it's a sort of fasting of the heart and mind, not as a way of kind of depriving ourselves, but of letting so much of what we carry to fall away. So I'd encourage you not to fill it up. You know, for this weekend, it's such a short time, if you could put away your book, Put away your reading, put away the 
the kind of momentum of busyness. You know, if you find yourself, you know, reading the instructions on the fire extinguishers or the tea boxes, you know, you can really sense how much you're gripped by that need always to be filling up, filling up. To let it empty a little. And to know that emptying is really in the service of listening, of learning to attend more deeply to the climate of our own heart and mind. The ethical guidelines have different dimensions, and the ethical guidelines are really the foundation not only of a retreat, but I would say that they are the foundation of this whole meditative path of awakening. And these are something, again, to carefully commit to. To One level of the guidelines is restraint, and the other level of the guidelines is cultivation. So we restrain from harming any living creature. The cultivation, the embodiment of that, is actually to protect all life. We restrain from taking anything that's not freely given to us. But the cultivation is the generosity. The generosity of silence, the generosity of your work period, the generosity of your practice that is in the service of all beings. We restrain from saying anything that is not truthful. in a silent retreat, this is not so hard. <coughs> but we also commit to being as honest as we can in whatever communications are, are needed. We restrain from any sexual contact during the time of the retreat. But we also express and commit to a, a kind of respect of others. We restrain from taking any intoxicants that cloud the mind. But we also then commit ourselves to developing a genuine clarity and stillness of mind. I would also encourage you during the time of this retreat to let yourself slow down a little. Sometimes we bring into a retreat, some of the haste and the busyness of our lives. There's no need to rush here. There's no need to be in a hurry. There's no need to lean forward into the next moment all the time. We can settle back, slow down a little, let our bodies really be an anchor of our attention. We can learn to be awake. So I'd like to uh, give some instructions about the practice just briefly this evening. But before I do that, you might want to take, if you need to, take uh, just two minutes to stand up and stretch your legs if you need to.
So compassion as a practice, as a training, really rests upon the cultivation of clear and wise intention. Through that clear and wise intention, what we learn to do moment to moment is to incline our hearts, incline our minds towards compassion. We're learning through that, those intentions to turn towards suffering, to turn towards that which is difficult, that which we most habitually abandon or flee from. Now, the intention, the intentions are embodied in the use of a few simple phrases. The phrases that are used are really invitations or offerings that we make to the presence of suffering. Now, compassion practice, some of you I know are familiar with loving-kindness practice. Compassion practice is a little different. A loving-kindness practice is often very much focused upon a generating of a warmth and a friendliness that is offered towards the well-being of others. Compassion practice has a slightly different perspective because compassion practice is much more focused upon opening, opening to the presence of suffering opening to the presence of the difficult. Even more than opening, it is really focused upon inviting, actually, the awareness of suffering into our hearts and minds, into a space of listening. Now, classically, there is a development to compassion practice. And the first dimension or the first place of that development is actually turning our attention, inclining our hearts and minds towards the dimension of suffering that I would call blameless. Blameless suffering. Now I will speak much more about this tomorrow morning. But what I would encourage you to begin with this evening is to contemplate, to reflect upon someone in your life, preferably someone you know, who is in the midst of sorrow, a struggle of anguish. It might be physical, it might be psychological, it might be emotional. Someone who is going through a life, a time of life, that is marked by suffering, by pain. Sometimes it's the suffering of aging, of illness, of loss. 
the whole range of tragedy, of misfortune that can come to us in this life, that can come into the lives of those we know and care for and love. The kind of misfortune in which we really don't hold anyone uh, to blame. In which we don't, are not preoccupied with finding fault. And most of us in our life actually don't have to think too hard to find someone who we know who is in the midst of misfortune, of sorrow, of struggle in their life. If you are so blessed <coughs> that you actually don't know anyone in any of those situations at this time in your life, you can expand out to someone who you don't know, who is in the midst of that kind of blameless misfortune. Sometimes the misfortunes that simply come with being alive. It can be the, the, the or children orphaned through AIDS, a person in a refugee camp, a person caught in a war not of their making, a person caught in the midst of terror, of violence. When you contemplate, reflect, uh, and I would encourage you to primarily have one person, possibly two. It can be someone you know and also someone you don't know. The practice begins by really inviting that person into your attention and into your heart. If you're able to visualize that person in your mind, hold their image in your mind, in your heart. Sense how their life is in this moment. Sense the kind of struggle, the kind of anguish they are experiencing. If you can't visualize them or see them in your heart or mind, remember their name. The practice begins with making that first connection with that person who is caught in the midst of misfortune. Letting yourself be relaxed in your body, in your posture. Letting yourself be upright and steady in your posture. Letting yourself settle into a place of stillness and balance. softening any areas of holding in your body or your mind. 
letting go of some of the busyness of thought of past and future. And inviting into your attention, inviting into your heart, your awareness of a person you know or someone you don't know who at this moment in their life is in the midst of anguish, of sorrow, of fear, of pain, maybe in the midst of loss or grief or struggle. As much as you're able to, just sensing that person. Sensing their turmoil, their struggle, their suffering. Their image, your sense of them. Just rest in your attention and heart. Being able to hold that person in a warmth, a tenderness, a caring attention. And within that stillness, within that care, just bringing into your attention the intentions and the phrases of compassion. May you find peace. May you find healing. May you be free from suffering. May you find peace. May you find healing. May you be free from suffering. As you hold and sustain connection with that person, with their sorrow, their pain, 
resting your attention in the intention of warmth, of tenderness. May you find peace. May you find healing. May you be free from suffering. May you find peace. May you find healing. May you be free from suffering.
the practice of path of compassion <coughs> is really much like any other practice or path of meditation in that the more attention the more commitment we bring to it the more it will deepen and unfold I would really encourage you over the weekend to be very wholehearted in your commitment to the practice it is a short time we have but actually you can really deepen and become very intimate with this practice in this time this evening I would really encourage you to make that connection make that bond as clearly and as fully as you're able to with this dimension of misfortune <coughs> now in doing that you need to be of course somewhat mindful of some of the you know more familiar responses or reactions that can arise of just wanting to push away or distance or feeling sorry for or feeling uh, at times we can become lost in our own um, sense of sorrow and sadness about another I would really encourage you to be very steady and very steadfast with sustaining the connection but with also sustaining the intention and the phrases of really not being lost anywhere that there is a simple receiving of another in pain a trembling of the heart your compassion through is sometimes translated as a trembling of the heart in response to pain in response to sorrow and in sustaining the intentions and the phrases really as fully as possible we're learning to come close to that place where we're not lost but where we touch upon that very simple trembling of the heart in response to sorrow to sustain the connection with this one or two people just as much as you're able to uh, tomorrow morning there's a half an hour sitting before breakfast at seven o'clock if you've um, you know traveled a lot today and you're totally exhausted you know you can uh, not come to that sitting uh, if you feel you would like to start your day a little bit more slowly I would ask you to be and encourage you to be mindful of the times outside of the meditation hall you know it's very easy to think okay when I'm in here this is where I practice and everywhere else is kind of doing something different I would encourage you in the times outside of the hall 
you know, during breakfast time, during the work period, to stay with the phrases as much as you're able to, stay with the connection as much as you're able to. Now, there will be times when you need to give your attention to something else, you know, like if you're chopping vegetables, it's really a good idea to pay attention to chopping vegetables. You know, when you're showering or something like this, you need to give your attention very fully to that. In those times, just be mindful of your body. Just really place your attention, your mindfulness within your body, within all the movements of your body. In the times when your attention is not so demanded by another task, I would really encourage you to come back to the connection and to the phrases. May you find peace. May you find healing. May you be free from suffering. To start to really um, kind of deepen or really get a sense of this first primary connection within the practice. In the first sitting period after uh, breakfast tomorrow, um, I will speak quite a bit more about this first dimension of the practice, but enough to get started with.